everybody, and welcome back to Aligning America. I'm your host, Vincent Miller, and let's get right into things. Uh, starting off today, we're going to talk about a string of lawsuits. Um, of course, Trump has been making this case for the past two weeks now, arguing that he's actually won the election and he's trying to prove it through a number of lawsuits in multiple states to overturn the election results or to have ballots disqualified, hoping that that would be enough to change the, uh, the total end count making him the winner in these apparent swing states, we thought he was done. We thought that it was over, and I quite honestly think it's quite impressive that they've the legal team, at any rate, has not been locked out of court in all of these states by now, but this is starting to change. Um, we're getting too far down the line. A lot of states have already certified the votes for Joe Biden, and even if Trump wants to nullify, delay the certification, or have a recount now, which would delay the certification even longer... I think a lot of states are, are coming to realize that it's futile for them and they don't have to listen. Uh, and, and of course, those administrations in those states, even them being Republican in some states, they don't care at this point. They, they want to move forward. They have a number of things that they need to do as an administration, especially moving forward in states like Georgia, who have an election coming up, um, which I shudder to think how that will go. In all honesty, I think it's truly annoying more than anything. It's a it's a nuisance for most states now that Trump is, is starting these lawsuits over and over again. And, and you can see that in these total shutdowns that he's been getting. And we'll go into them. There's four largely that I want to call attention to, but there, there are a few others that are have more minor stories attached to them. So primarily, let's go to Michigan. The court found, and, and this was comical to me because it wasn't even on the basis of the lawsuit that Trump tried to bring to them. They found that the point of Trump's purported emergent application, which was an appeal to have a vote certification delayed, moot due to the fact that vote certification was over. I think to most people, it's pretty obvious. You can't delay something that's already done, but he was trying. Uh, and then moving to Nevada, we had Trump's team argue fraud, and it was quite impressive. They had a large scale. They were claiming over a thousand people who were dead had voted. They were claiming multiple people, about 45,000 of them had voted twice. Of course, none of these things have any proof. There's no proof of fraud. There's, you know, even people like William Barr and people on Trump's side have, have come out to state that there's no evidence yet. And that is always the key word yet. And then at the same time, you have people like Giuliani going on about how there's so much evidence. Why can't you all see it? It's a difficult thing to play both sides like that. In Nevada, they claimed quite grand, large scale fraud. The Nevada Supreme Court, of course, rules to end it due to the unrealistic nature of the argument, largely, of course, because there is no evidence. And this has been the running theme for the Trump team. Their campaign's election lawsuits have largely fallen flat due to the fact that there is no evidence to any of these claims and they cannot prove that anything's happened. And quite honestly, if they were able to prove one of any of these 50 lawsuits that they've filed, 50 or so, maybe more, maybe less, I, I can't quite remember. But if they were able to prove in any one of these, I think the precedent would be set for all of these to be accepted. Not obviously just bending to the knee of these, you know, whatever the, the demands of the court cases, but they would be heard in a realistic manner. As it stands, that's not the case. And, and largely, they're just being neglected due to this this running theme of inability to provide evidence, exactly as what we saw moving on into Minnesota. Republicans attempted to overturn the Biden victory in the state, which was already declared. Uh, they were shut down. Courts arguing that the practice was undemocratic and that there was no evidence to support such a claim or to support such a movement, which, again, it's just truthful. If there had been other court cases that Trump had pushed for that had had any semblance of success, maybe this wouldn't be the case. It's just immediate shutdowns across the board. Moving on to Wisconsin, which I think was the most solid case he had brought in this, this pushes for, for changes. 
in Wisconsin, he attempted to disqualify 221,000 ballots that had been dropped off uh, without the person's signature immediately, uh, immediately being checked on, that is. Uh, of course, these things were eventually checked on and they were eventually certified, hence the nature of those votes being counted. But at least there was a reason to segregate these votes, you know, these 221,000. There was no reason for a lot of the other ones, so it was difficult. He was just picking and choosing in counties that he didn't like, which made it look horrible for him. Of course, the optics, at least here, was more realistic. But again, it's it's part of a running theme when you can compare it to the other court cases. People aren't dumb. Object permanence is a, a skill you develop after two years of age. So it's we don't forget about other cases just because we're looking at this one. And that, that is how court cases work. We work off of precedent um, and especially local precedent like this in, in a large batch of court cases being ruled by the same primary support groups. Not saying that the case in Wisconsin held any water, simply stating it had the most legal precedent to be made. Uh, of course, it was rejected based on the precedent uh, surrounding all these court cases Perhaps moving on to the worst of all of these court cases, the one I think was was actually kind of abhorrent, constitutionally speaking. In Georgia, the Trump team voted to void the election there and was instantly shut down based on the uh, undemocratic nature of what they were asking for. Arizona had a similar, well, sort of similar system to what happened in Georgia. It wasn't an immediate shutdown, nor were they asking to void the election there. They were asking for a, a generalized relooking at a lot of things that would have been minor and would have taken a lot of time. A lot of these small election scruples or recounts on very small groups of ballots that would have taken a long time to, to get together and to recount uh, manually at any rate making it a, a difficult process, just meant to be menial and meant in order to elongate the results. Though, of course, Arizona having already certified as well as sworn in senators from that election, having John McCain with two, now count them, two Democratic senators from Arizona, which haven't ha hasn't happened in decades. So impressive there, having just sworn in Mark Kelly, good on the uh, McCains for making it happen, these uh, Renos as Trump is calling them, but I would consider them patriots, those who have voted against Donald Trump and voted for a true senator, not just because you hate Donald Trump, but because Martha McSally was a horrible person, arguably morally bankrupt. And I, I stand by those words. Uh, if you don't know anything about her, I believe we've talked about her a few episodes ago. But why do I make these very harsh and, and cruel statements? Maybe uh, she was the one who was asking her constituents to skip meals in order to donate more money to her. Uh, which I think is is beyond disgraceful. That's that's sickening. So yes, I'm I'm happy to see that Arizona has a backbone and and is standing by uh, their beliefs of of decency. So I'm I'm happy to see not only the court case there being thrown out because it was the dumb, quite honestly, just baseline stupid. Um, but not only that, uh, it, they they held their ground in the Senate, and it was the Senate seat we desperately needed. Now making Georgia an actual competitive battleground for a good reason. And, and so, yeah, that, that does conclude the court cases. Uh, these these cases were on the whole, had very little precedent seeing, you know, the majority reason that they were thrown out. But not only that, a lot of them were undemocratic. And especially the one in Georgia, it's difficult to wrap my head around because it's, it's just it's not democratic. And people who look at this election and especially young folks like me, we, we take it as fact. We take it as, oh, he's trying to nullify the votes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We haven't had a president do this. Now, people as young as I have haven't been around for enough elections to understand the precedent that goes on here. This does not happen. I'd like to remind everyone sitting at home, 
This doesn't happen in first world countries. This doesn't happen in elections in America. We are better than this. We are much better than this. Democratically speaking, we accept the results. We move on. That is the faith in the institutions you have to respect or else we have large issues, large polarizing partisan issues, which I think is what tears this country apart at the seams. You can't do this. And yet he is. And I'm glad to see that the courts are backing the Democratic institutions and not the current sitting president, because there there was a part of me that thought they might. And I was scared for that thought because that would have been the end of American democracy. And I'm glad to see that they're standing by. I do worry that the lasting damage to this institutional faith may cause problems down the road, but we're not there yet. So it's not something we can talk on. But I am glad to see the judicial branch of these states and nationally stepping in to ensure an election that goes the way it was called. The voice of the people was heard. And so these people will continue to vote and to continue to understand that these institutions do support what they want. Uh, maybe not the politicians in power. And there's a there's an argument to be made that there's a lot of change that needs to go on there. And I agree entirely. But on the whole, the democratic process does work. The democratic process of elections is safe and secure. And that has been noted by everyone who with any semblance of certification, with any semblance of any education on the subject has has come out and said that it, it was safe and it was secure. And these things are everything went as well as it could have. That is good. And I'm glad that people are standing by and understanding that even if it, you know, the sitting president may not be able to do so. Another short story coming out of the courts back in Brooklyn. There was a court judge who has ruled that acting, well, former acting Secretary of Homeland Security, Chad Wolf, which just a little aside, what a cool name and what a shame it was wasted on him. Uh, but Chad Wolf was uh, the man who, who stated that uh, DACA recipients would uh, now be deported and there would be no, they would not be accepting any DACA recipients. And then there was the outrage. Uh, leading to a court to prove that you could not deport the DACA recipients. But theoretically, uh, Chad was able to stop new DACA recipients from entering the program. Uh, though recently, just post-election, which is a, a little bit of irony, the Brooklyn court has now, as of today, claimed that he was not able to do so. And now DACA recipients are now going to be accepted or at least forced him to, to now force the Department of Homeland Security to now accept more DACA recipients. We don't know if they will comply. Uh, quite frankly, it doesn't really matter, seeing as Joe Biden will take office soon, and that, that'll all change, assuming that the Senate can confirm a new Department of Homeland Security, at least ahead of it. Though that does pose a number of questions, and that's where I'd like the spinoff here. While DACA is a large thing, and I'm glad to see that return, I'm, I'm not happy to see a return to Obama-era politics, but I am happy to res you know at least understand that uh, the, the courts are holding the, the executive branch where it needs to be held. There's that balance of power. There's no executive overreach, which is what should scare most Americans. The last thing you want, even, you know, it's great when your guy's in power and they can just force an agenda through and you feel so good about it. But then when the other guy gets in power, you're going to be really scared. And, and it's not something we want to have created so I'm glad to see executive overreach being curtailed. I'm glad to see the courts standing by the balance of power. Uh, with that said, uh, there, there's a bit of a tangent I'd want to go on because we talk about Chad Wolf. He was the acting security. He's the acting head of the Department of Homeland Security. And what does acting mean versus the actual 
head of the Department of Homeland Security? Well, that largely is simply one thing. The Senate never confirmed Chad Wolf. The Senate never said they never voted and said, yes, you are able to serve. That is something that the Senate actually needs to vote on, which is you could argue is strange. Sure. I, I forget what it stems from, but it wasn't always the case. But yes, the Senate needs to confirm cabinet positions. With that said, they're the acting title, the acting name that goes before that simply means they haven't yet been confirmed, but they're able to use the powers of that, that place while they sit waiting to be confirmed by the Senate. But they never were. The Senate never confirmed Chad Wolf and they never voted to confirm because they wouldn't have ex accepted his, his position. They wouldn't have. He was not qualified. He had no experience. He was simply a Trump sycophant who had quite honestly got quite lucky. So you wonder, you wonder moving forward, if Joe Biden, if we cannot secure a Democratic at least 50-50 in the Senate, allowing Kamala Harris to break that tie and allowing Joe Biden to have a at least a cabinet of mostly who he wants, you wonder what happens then? What happens if you can't muster the votes to you know approve a Biden cabinet? Well, many now speculate you're simply just going to use acting people. You, I mean, think about it. If you if you never have now now of course this is a hypothetical and it wouldn't happen. But if Elizabeth Warren was going to be given a small cabinet position to satiate the progressives, I don't think it would ever happen. But let's say it did. She would never be confirmed by a 50-50 because there are Democrats who cannot confirm that election at places like Arizona and places like Georgia. If they had confirmed Elizabeth Warren, they would be in trouble losing their seat. She's the spooky spectrum communism. Same with Bernie Sanders. Same with Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. People like that. If you, you know, if you vote to confirm them, it paints you as a socialist. So Democrats in West Virginia are certainly not going to get reelected on that record. So even a 50-50 may be difficult. But let's say Biden says, you know, we need to satiate the, the, the far left progressives. We need to get her through. Let's just not put it up to a vote. She can be acting secretary of transportation. That is the question there. And what is the constitutionality behind that? Well, there really is none because it, it was made to be confirmed. However, there are no repercussions, not in the Constitution. And we know how Republicans feel about the literal and, and unchanging definition of things in the Constitution. The Democrats, of course, would have no reason to change the Constitution. And the originalists, the traditionalists on the right, are not going to change the Constitution to do so because they find the power of executive overreach wonderful. So that executive overreach of applying, you know, cabinet positions and requiring no uh, legislative approval, that's a dangerous place to be. And I think Trump was the one who explored this idea so much uh, because he simply had acting secretaries everywhere without requiring approval by the Senate. Uh, it's a dangerous game to play. And, and it's a worrisome idea that that now we've moved into an era of at least this level of executive overreach. We saw it with Obama, with his overuse of executive orders, and I think that was a, a huge issue. And then we saw it with Trump. And if you look at the, the line, the record, executive orders have been going up exponentially with president to president. So I worry, and, and not even president to president, actually term to term, which scares me even more. Because that, that means the scale is going up a lot more. Again, we saw it with Trump, and he pushed so many what should have been legislative policies through uh, on, on the basis of executive order. Look to the wall, look to Pentagon funding, stuff like that. And, and executive orders are really only meant to be emergency use situations like funding for 
uh, disaster relief. That is executive funding or an executive order that, that controls funding that is understandable. Because, of course, if you've gone through U.S. history in high school, you should know that the power of the purse, the power of the budget, lies in the legislative branch. It's not the executive. So allocation of funds should be deferred to the legislative branch. However, we're looking at executive orders increasingly and increasingly becoming more uh, potent in these these forces, in these uses of funding uh, for emergency situations. But it's difficult to, to draw the line. What is an emergency situation? What isn't? Coronavirus? Sure, maybe, kind of. I mean, I would consider that an emergency. I'd consider it an emergency that we've all grown used to, but it's still an emergency. So what stops Biden from using $100 million to do X? Where X is anything relating to coronavirus, no one knows. I, you know, the border wall was an emergency to Trump. What, what, I mean, nothing stopped him from using funding from the Pentagon to emergency using a, you know, a declaration by the president to move funds from one place to another uh, to get the wall going. I mean, these things which should be put up to legislation are not. And that is dangerously encroaching on not not a dictatorship. No, I would never claim something like that. But it's it it is empowering the president to a degree that I do not think they should have. You look to places that do have that level of, of strength in their executive branch compared to the legislative branch. You look to France and what happens in France every other weekend. There's a riot. There's a protest. There's I mean, the yellow vest protests have been going on for years now. And it, it seems to be just an off and on phenomenon of whenever the president uses too much power, uh, Macron gets in trouble and the, the people of Paris riot. So my question is this. Do we want that to be what's going on in the United States? We already have instability here socially and economically. So what's to say that two presidents down the line, we don't have protests every other weekend? I, I, I don't understand the appeal there. Not only because, you know, it would ruin many people's way of life and it would also decrease the standard of living across the country. But with that said, we don't want the president to have that level of power. We designed the government in a way that would prevent that. So it's it's a dangerous thing to encroach on. And it's dangerous to see in, in small ways the democratic institution being chipped away at by the executive branch. And I, again, it's not Trump. It's not Obama. It's not anyone. It's It's the office as a whole. It's not any one person. Every time you could choose, Obama could have chose or Trump could have chose to be more democratic than his predecessor, but neither of them did. Not to compare the presidents because that's not what, what I'm doing here. Simply looking at their actions, they're both victimizing the American people. They're both victimizing the democratic system here for their own personal gain. Because if you can push your agenda through, you look like a better president, you look like you followed up on promises and it wasn't the Senate's fault, it wasn't the Congress's fault. That's an issue. Quite honestly, that's an issue because, yes, we all want the president to be able to do what they promised for the constituents because, yes, ideally they won in the Democratic election, though, of course, now we're kind of throwing that up all in the air. Following the regular line of thinking, the president won. He has, now has the public mandate to do X. He should be able to do X. Don't get me wrong. But that should have to go through the, the regular channels of legislature. That should not be an executive order snap and finish. That, that That is not how democracy works in this republic, and it, it should never be because that is a very dangerous near oligarchical level of power. No, not a dictator. No, he's not going to be killing political opponents, but it's a dangerous line to, to play around because oligarchy stands between dictatorship and democracy. And if you want to look at that scale, 
you want to, I mean, I don't think we should ever get closer to a dictatorship. That That's just my personal feeling, because I don't think empowering the executive branch does anything other than polarizes politics more. And it worries me. So on the whole, stemming from what seems like very insignificant, small, small precedents being made, but these acting secretaries of everything, coupled with the overuse of executive orders, these things are dangerous that need to be curtailed and contained, but I don't think they will. Uh, So no, I'm not saying go run and hide and stockpile on guns because the government's coming for you in the next coming weeks. That's not at all what I'm saying. Simply stating that it is important to keep an eye on these things to understand what is truly going on inside the government, to look at the larger trends, not just the daily news cycles, because these things can creep up on you. It can be, you know, one day you'll wake up and, and boom, maybe in 10, 20, 30 years, you'll say, wow, the president seems a lot more important and powerful than he used to be. That's probably because behind the scenes, when no one's looking at the trends, these things are happening and, and they're becoming accepted. And that's the scary part. So as long as you keep an eye on them and you can call out the presidents when they do them, that's what keeps them in check. And and quite honestly, that's what's going to save democracy. All right, moving on to the last subject of today's podcast, it's going to be pardons. Now, no, we're not talking about Trump pardoning other political activists like we talked about last week. This is much more close to home. This is much more interesting and much more scandalous, quite honestly. Uh, we've, we've got pardons. Apparently, an aide for Giuliani came out stating that Giuliani had talks in Trump's office of pardoning him preemptively along with a bunch of his aides because of reasons. Now, what is reasons, of course, to preemptively pardon someone, which is an argument we'll, we'll talk about in just a second. I, of course, you know, you would pardon someone before the crime has been admitted to or been persecuted. But but instead, you know, it would, I, I suppose, immediately nullify them of any action in court. It would nullify them any accusations, evidently. I'm, I'm not quite entirely sure. Uh, that's because a preemptive pardon doesn't exist or at least has not existed yet and is not, quite honestly, not something I ever want to think about because a preemptive pardon is nothing but an admission of guilt before being caught. Why do I say that? Because a preemptive pardon would mean nothing to someone who is innocent. It would only be instigated by someone who was guilty. It would only be asked for by someone who was guilty. It would only be used on someone who was guilty. It would be useless to use on anyone else. The presidential pardon, which is a an ability that the executive branch has that was originally intended, not a lot of people know this, but it was originally intended to keep corrupt courts from throwing people in jail based on faulty or flimsy evidence. Uh, This, of course, stemming from the American fear of British-esque rule, where that was quite common to have courts go in, arrest someone for really no reason. But, you know, if everyone on the court acts like there's a good reason, then he gets thrown in jail anyways. And that's what they were afraid of. So the presidential pardon was going to be used like that. Thankfully, never had to be. Actually, American courts were, were quite solid from the beginning, which is, you know, go America, USA, USA. But Nowadays, the presidential pardon is just used for weird and illegal things. Uh, Why do I say weird and illegal things? Well, you look at the president, the precedent for the record, not the president, but you look at the precedent and it's a little bit weird. You go back. I'm just going to go back to uh, George W. You've got a string of cocaine dealers that he pardoned. Why? Anybody's guess. I mean, there's an obvious joke that he was either into cocaine or someone he knew was. Then you look at Obama, pardon a bunch of his political allies. Unfortunate, 
kind of gross and grimy and illegal, but unfortunate. Big shock. Trump rolls around, does exactly the same thing, just far more obviously and in the public eye. So uh, you, you look at all that and we'll talk about that even more in a second. But Trump, his pardons have been, I mean, obvious. Roger Stone, Michael Flynn, people that have you know lied to courts on his behalf. That's just a legal action. And as far as I'm concerned, now, it's illegal in the sense of, of morality and what is technically, you know, crossing the bounds of legal. But no, the pardons are legal. The pardons do follow the precedent. They, they do follow what is in the bounds of the law. So no, those are not illegal. Just the actions taken are illegal, in my opinion. Trump, having talked to Giuliani, this aide speaking out, talking, you know, saying that Trump was looking into a preemptive pardon of Rudy Giuliani, that says a lot. It says nothing new, but it does say a lot. And and so we'll see where it goes, because, you know, there's not a lot on the case now, simply that, you know, we could we could talk about what it might be for perhaps Giuliani's 2017, 2018 Ukraine talks were were, you know, the reason for it, because I know he very well could have lied about having talked to certain people there or could be contacts somewhere entirely different. Could be someone, you know, could be something in China, could be something in Russia. We don't know. Uh, it, it could be something for far more like, uh, you know, actually projected by Giuliani. It could have been any number of things. It could have been a, a fraud thing. It could have been a scandal for uh, my, my best guess would be tax fraud, quite honestly. But who knows? So that's weird. And it's kind of scary. Uh, and then you move on to a scarier thought because Sean Hannity comes out and he says, you know what, Trump, you should just pardon your whole family preemptively. Uh, that would nullify everyone's crimes and then no one could persecute you and you wouldn't have to worry about like actually dealing with these court battles that you're surely to face after you leave the office. And Trump says that's a fantastic idea. It's not a fantastic idea. It's illegal, in my opinion, because that's that's just an admission of large scale guilt amongst all family members. Now, it would be more obvious if they, you know, if it was just Ivanka and Don Jr., or something like that, to that effect anyways, but pardoning them all makes them all look guilty. I have to say, no one hides things unless they've got a reason to hide them. If everyone would love to see your tax returns with your you know, charity giftings and all of that, you wouldn't hide them. You would love to show them. So of course there are problems here. The, the, the tax returns, of course, we still haven't seen, probably never will, I'd like to add. It's scary. It's scary to see that Trump is genuinely considering these things, uh, and and quite honestly, it's it's a bit disconcerting that media personalities are agreeing with them, at least over there at Fox News. So and OAN for the record. Uh, so you know, concerning. And and there's a lot of speculation you could go on, but I'm not going to do that to them here because there's no point. Because quite honestly, we don't know enough. Uh, though I look forward to coming court cases because uh, we did actually get a, a great. Quite honestly, one of the biggest scandals out of the Trump presidency now, there was a pseudo scandal now because a court case uh, investigation for cash for pardon scheme, Trump and his allies, w was currently opened by the judge presiding over the the court case. And, and actually, Ivanka is stated to have testified already. So we know the court case is well underway, probably underway since late 2018 or something of the time. What does it mean? I don't know. Again, a cash for pardon scheme, that would be a new level of, of what I would consider criminal in the pardoning actions. But we'll have to see how the court case rules. Uh, again, believe in the faith and institutions of the court. That's the only way democracy preserves. So we'll see. But again, 
with preemptive pardons on the, you know, the lifeline, if that's the thing you're hoping for, I guarantee you something's going wrong inside that White House. And, and people, you know, I could have said that four years ago and people would have agreed with me. But a cash for pardon scheme would be a literal criminal organization in the White House, which you could argue the Trump organization already is. But with that said, this would be a new level of degradation of the White House. And it would be gross. And I only laugh at it because it's just so ridiculous. It's a whole level of just insanity that I personally uh, find it difficult to fathom. With that said, um, you know, it, it, welcome to 2020. I'm, I'm so glad this year's nearly ending. I'm just worried 2021 won't change anything. And so moving on to the last scandal we've got here, Michael Flynn, of course, being the man who was pardoned by Trump, who was a former national security advisor, who was then fired, then lied in front of the FBI and then was pardoned and was let to go. Uh, he reposted a message on social media. He was it was an, either a retweet or a repost on Facebook of a Republican group that had called for Trump to impose martial law and declare himself the winner of the election, throwing all political prisoners in jail. Um, yeah, that's like Hitler. That's some Mussolini fascism's this type stuff. That's that's horrifying. No, I don't take it seriously. No, I don't think it really means anything. Did he mean it? Probably. And Michael Flynn probably believed that's what Trump should have done, or at least found it, you know, entertaining enough to repost. But no, I don't think Trump would actually do anything like that. That's a bit absurd. I think the military at that point would turn on him and it would be over. But well, what a horrifying state of politics. That that just encapsulates it all. A pardoned man who had lied to the FBI and then was saved by a president now calls for that president to openly overthrow the government by using force and overturning the election results using force and then establishing his own rule for God knows how long. Uh, wonderful. Lovely. Smiles all around. Sounds beautiful. So, you know, just just, just a scary thought to end, end the day off with. It's what do I, I mean, this whole podcast started off as as polarization. I think it's it's polarization that's going to tear us apart. And you want to look at polarization? There it is. You you want it? You want to find something that actually you know supports my thesis? That's it. Because people on both sides are taking hardline stances for the sake of hardline stances, because they're they're being reactionary towards the other hardline stances. I mean, there's no. It's just getting ridiculous. But here we are, guys. So with all that said. It's an interesting rundown between, you know, pardons, scandals, and lawsuits. It does look like Trump's on the back foot. It definitely looks like he's on the way out. But it it, it won't be a clean exit. I'll tell you that much. I, I think it's going to be something that we remember for years and years and years. And uh, it'll be something we remember and say, thank God that's done. for listening through to the end. We'd really appreciate it if you check us out at Aligning America on Instagram and Twitter. And if you really enjoyed it and want more content like this, be sure to head over to our Patreon to ensure we can keep putting out episodes changing hearts and minds one podcast at a time. Thank you.